0: Apostasy from the faith and profession of the truth once known and professed. The angels that sinned are the apostate angels. The apostasy described is not so much an act of apostasy as a state of apostasy. It is not if we have sinned, if we have apostatized, but if we sin. If we apostatize, if we continue in apostasy. Unquote. English translators prior to the American version read, If we sin willingly, the change being made in 1611 to avoid giving countenance to the supposition that there is no recovery after any voluntary sin. The Greek word, will not permit of this change. The only other occurrence of it in First Peter 5, 2, clearly gives its scope. Taking the oversight not by constraint, but willingly. Albert Barnes said, For if we sin willingly, that is voluntarily of our own accord, where no constraint is used. The reference is to a definite decision where an individual deliberately determines to abandon Christ and turn away from God. In the Jewish law, as is indeed the case everywhere, a distinction is made between sins of oversight, inadvertence, or ignorance. Leviticus chapter 4, verses 2, 13, and 22. Chapter 5, verse 15, Numbers, chapter 15, verses 24 and 27 to 29. Compare Acts 3.17 and 17.30. And sins of presumption, sins that are deliberately and intentionally committed. See Exodus 21.14, Numbers 15.30. Deuteronomy 17.12 and Psalm 19.13. The Apostle here has reference evidently to such a distinction and means to speak of a decided and deliberate purpose to break away from the restraints and obligations of the Christian religion. Unquote. For if we sin willingly and so forth, Who are the ones that are here warned against this terrible sin? Who are they that are in danger of committing it? The answer is all who make a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus. But are genuine Christians in any such danger? Looked at from the standpoint of God's everlasting covenant, which he made with them in the person of their sponsor. Which covenant is ordered in all things and sure? No. Looked at according to their standing and state in Christ, as those who have been perfected forever? Chapter 10, verse 14. No. But, considered as they are in themselves mutable creatures, as was unfallen Adam, without any strength of their own? Yes. Yes. Viewed as those who still have the sinful nature within them, yes. Contemplated as those who are yet the objects of Satan's relentless attacks, yes. But it may be said, God sees his people only in Christ. Not so is the reply. Were that the case, he would never chasten Hebrews 12:5 to10, us. God views the Christian both in Christ legally and in this world actually. He addresses us as responsible beings, second Peter 1:10, and regulates the manifestations of His love for us according to our conduct. John 14:23. It is to be carefully noted that the Apostle Paul did not say, If ye sin willingly, but if we, thus including himself. Two reasons may be suggested for this. First, to soften a little the severity of this terrible warning. He shows there is no respect of persons in this matter. Were he to commit this dreadful sin himself, he too would suffer the same unmitigable doom. Hereby he sets all preachers and teachers a godly example. Such was his general custom. Compare the we in chapter 2, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 6 and 14, chapter 12, verse 25, and the us in chapter 4, verse 1 and 11. Second To emphasize the unvarying outworking of this law, no exceptions are made. The Apostle includes himself to show that even he himself could not look to escape the divine vengeance here denounced if he fell into the sin here described. After that we have received the knowledge of the truth, these words not only serve to identify the ones who are Cautioned against apostasy, but are added to emphasize the enormity of the sin. It would not be through ignorance or lack of knowledge, but after being enlightened, they abandon Christianity. The truth, rather than the gospel, is here specifically mentioned so as to heighten the contrast. It is for a lie that Christ is rejected, The word knowledge here is a compound and signifies acknowledgement and is so rendered in Titus 1.1 and Philemon 6. Owen says, The word is not used anywhere to express the mere conceptions or notions of the mind about this, but such acknowledgement of it as arises from some sense of its power and excellency. Unquote. To receive this acknowledgment of the truth includes an act of the mind in understanding it, an act of the will in consenting, and an act of the heart in embracing it. John Owen continues, Wherefore, the sin here intended is plainly a relinquishment and renunciation of the truth of the gospel and the promises thereof, with all duty thereunto belonging, after we have been convinced of its truth and avowed its power and excellency. There is no more required but that this be willingly, not upon a sudden surprisal and temptation as Peter denied Christ, not on those compulsions and fears which may work a present dissimulation without an internal rejection of the gospel, not through darkness, ignorance making an impression for a season on the minds and reasonings of men, which things, though exceedingly evil and dangerous, may befall them who yet contract not the guilt of this crime, but it is required thereunto that men who thus sin do it by choice and of their own accord from the eternal pravity of their own mind and an evil heart of unbelief to depart from the living God, that they do it by and with the preference of another way of religion and arresting therein before or above the gospel. Unquote. The unpardonableness of this sin is affirmed in the words, There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. A similar passage which throws light on our present verse is found in 1 Samuel 3.14, And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli, that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice or offering forever as there were certain sins which in Old Testament times, from their heinousness and the high-handed rebellion of their perpetrators, had no sacrifice allowed them, but died without mercy. Verse 29, so it is now with those who apostatize from Christ. There is no relief appointed for them, no means for the expiation of their sins. They voluntarily and finally reject the gospel, forfeit all interest in the sacrifice of Christ. Ere leaving this verse, let it be said emphatically that there is nothing in it which in any wise conflicts with the blessed truth of the eternal security of God's saints. The apostle did not here say the Hebrews had apostatized Nor did he affirm they would do so. No, instead he faithfully points out the sure, dreadful and eternal consequences. Did they do so? For if we sin willingly, it was to keep them from it that he here sets it down by way of supposition. Just as in Romans 8.13 he says, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. As to how far a person may go in the taking up of Christianity and as to what the Spirit may work in him short of actual regeneration and then that one apostatize, only God knows. And as to how close a real Christian may come to presumptuous, Psalm 19.13, sinning, and yet remain innocent of the great transgression, Only God can decide. We are only in the place of safety while we maintain the attitude of complete dependency upon the Lord and of unreserved subjection to Him. To indulge the flesh is dangerous. To persist in a course of self-gratification is highly dangerous. And to remain therein unto the end would be fatal. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Verse 27 The positive punishment of apostates is here announced. John Owen said, When a man under the law had contracted the guilt of any such sin as was indispensably capital in its punishment, for the legal expiation thereof no sacrifice was appointed or allowed, such as murder, adultery, blasphemy. He had nothing remaining but a fearful expectation of the execution of the sentence of the law against him. And it is evident that in this context the apostle argues from the less unto the greater. If it was so that this was the case of him who so sinned against Moses' law, how much more must it be so with them that sin against the gospel, whose sin is incomparably greater and the punishment more severe. Unquote. The divine punishment which shall be visited upon apostates is first spoken of under the general term judgment as in chapter 9, verse 27. This signifies that it will be a righteous sentence proportioned unto their awful crime. There will be a full and open trial with an impartial judicial condemnation of them. The term is also used to express the punishment itself. James 2.13 and Second 2 Peter 2.3 Both meanings are probably included here. There is no mean between pardon and damnation. The sure approach of this judgment is referred to as a certain fearful looking for of it. The word certain here signifies something which is not fully defined as in a certain woman, Mark 5.25, a certain nobleman, John 4.46. It therefore denotes the judgment is inexpressible, such as no human heart can conceive or tongue portray. Fearful, intimates, the punishment will be so dreadful that when men come to apprehend it, they are filled with horror and dismay. Looking for shows that the apostates already have an earnest of God's wrath in their consciences even now. And fiery indignation, or fierceness of fire, as in the American Revised Version, or more literally, of fire fervor, Baxter's interlinear, this describes more closely the nature of the judgment awaiting them. The terms used denote you know, the restless tormenting destroying efficacy of God's terrible wrath and emphasizes its dreadful fierceness God is highly incensed against the apostates and inconceivably and indescribably dreadful will be his dealings with them It will express and answer to His infinite justice, holiness, and power. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with His chariots like a whirlwind to render His anger against the earth and His rebuke with flames of fire. Isaiah 66:15. No doubt the reference in our verse is to the final judgment at the last day and the eternal destruction of God's enemies. A solemn and graphic shadowing forth of this was given by God when His sword and fiery judgment fell upon the Jews in A.D. 70, destroying their church state by fire and sword, which shall devour the adversaries. There is probably... An allusion here to the dreadful fate which overtook Nadab and Abihu, concerning whom it is written, There went out fire from the Lord and devoured them. Leviticus 10.2 And also the judgment visited upon Korah, Dathan, and Abiram when the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, so that they went down alive into the pit. Numbers 16.30-33 The adversaries are those who are actuated by a principle of hostile opposition to Christ and Christianity. They are enemies of God, and God will show himself to be their enemy. God's wrath shall, as John Owen said, devour them as to all happiness, all blessedness, all hopes, comfort, and relief at once, but it shall not consume their being. This is that which this fire shall ever prey upon them, and never utterly consume them. Unquote. From such a doom may divine grace deliver both writer and hearer. Arthur Pink. Continued in the May Studies. study number 3 the life of david his slaying of goliath when samuel denounced saul's first great sin and announced that his kingdom should not continue he declared the lord hath sought him a man after his own heart for samuel 13:14 to this allusion was made by the apostle paul In his address in the synagogue at Antioch, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Acts 13.22 A truly wondrous tribute was this unto the character of David, yet one which the general course of his life bore out. The dominant characteristic of our patriarch was his unfeigned and unsurpassed devotion to God, his cause, and his word. Blessedly is this illustrated in what is now to be before us. The man after God's own heart is the one who is out and out for him putting his honor and glory before all other considerations. 1 Samuel 17.15 supplies a precious link between what was considered in our last lesson and what we are now about to ponder. There we are told, But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Knowing that he was to be the next king over Israel, Natural prudence would suggest that his best policy was to remain at court making the most of his opportunities and seeking to gain the goodwill of the ministers of state. But instead of so doing, the son of Jesse returned to the sheepfold, leaving it with God to work out his will concerning him. No seeker after self-aggrandizement was David. The palace, as such, possessed no attractions for him. Having fulfilled his service unto the king, he now returns to his father's farm. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shokha, 1 Samuel 17, 1. Josephus said that This occurred not long after the things related in the preceding chapter had transpired. It seems likely that the Philistines had heard of Samuel's forsaking of Saul and of the king's melancholy and distraction occasioned by the evil spirit and deemed it a suitable time to avenge themselves upon Israel for their last slaughter of them. Chapter 14 The enemies of God's people are ever alert to take advantage of their opportunities and never have they a better one than when their leaders provoke God's spirit and his prophets lead them. Nevertheless, it is blessed to see here how that God makes the wrath of man to praise him, Psalm seventy-six ten. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. Chapter 17, verse 2 The king had been relieved, for a season at least, of the evil spirit, but the spirit of the Lord had not returned to him as the sequel plainly evidences. A sorry figure did Saul and his forces now cut. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, Then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verses 4 and 8 to 11. Ere pondering the haughty challenge which was here thrown down, let us point out for the strengthening of faith in the inerrancy of holy writ a small detail which exhibits the minute accuracy and harmony of the word. In Numbers 13 we read that the spies sent out by Moses to inspect the promised land declared, the land through which we have gone to search it, is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants of the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. Verses 32 and 33. Now link up with this, Joshua 11:21 and 22. At that time came Joshua and cut off the Anakims from the mountains. There was none of the Anakims left in the land of the children of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod there remained. Here in our present passage it is stated quite incidentally that Goliath belonged to Gath. Thus in the mouth of three witnesses, Moses, Joshua and Samuel, is the word established, concurring as they do in a manner quite artless to verify a single particular? How jealous was God about his word? What a sure foundation faith has to rest upon. Goliath pictures to us the great enemy of God and man, the devil seeking to terrify and bring into captivity those who bear the name of the Lord. His prodigious size, probably over eleven feet, symbolized the great power of Satan. His accoutrements, compare the word armor in Luke 11.22, figured the fact that the resources of flesh and blood cannot overcome Satan. His blatant challenge adumbrated the roaring of the lion, our great adversary, as he goes about seeking whom he may devour. First Peter 5 8. His declaration that the Israelites were but servants to Saul, verse 8, was only too true, for they were no longer in subjection to the Lord. 1 Samuel 8 7. The dismay of Saul, verse 11 is in solemn contrast from his boldness in chapter 11, verses 5 to 11, and chapter 14, verse 47, when the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. The terror of the people, verse 11, was a sad evidence of the fact that the fear of the Lord, chapter 11, verse 7, was no longer upon them. But all of this only served to provide a background from which the courage of the man after God's own heart might the more evidently appear. The terrible giant of Gath continued to menace the army of Israel twice a day for no less than forty days, a period which in Scripture is ever associated with probation and testing. Such a protracted season served to make the more manifest the impotency of a people out of communion with God. There was Saul himself who from his shoulders and upward was higher than any of the people. Chapter 9 verse 2 There was Jonathan who, assisted only by his armor-bearer, had on a former occasion slain twenty of the Philistines. Chapter 14 verse 14 There was Abner, the captain of the host, chapter 14, verse 50, a valiant man, 26.15, but he too declined Goliath's challenge. Ah, my hearer, the best, the bravest of men are no more than what God makes them. When he renews not his courage, the stoutest heart is a coward. Yet God does not act arbitrarily, rather is cowardice one of the consequences of lost communion with Him. The righteous are bold as a lion. Proverbs 28.1 Man's extremity is God's opportunity, but He does not always nor generally act immediately when we are brought low. No, He waits, to be gracious, Isaiah thirty eighteen, and that, that our helplessness may be the more fully realized, that his delivering hand may be seen the more clearly, and that his merciful interposition may be the more appreciated. But even at this time, when all seemed lost to Israel, when there was none in her army that dared to pick up the gauntlet which Goliath had thrown down. God had his man in reserve, and in due time he appeared on the scene and vindicated the glorious name of Jehovah. The instrument chosen seemed to natural wisdom and military prudence a weak and foolish one, utterly unfitted for the work before him. Ah, it is just such that God uses, and why, that the honor may be his, that no flesh should glory in his presence. 1 Corinthians 1.29 Before considering the grand victory which the Lord wrought through David, let us carefully ponder the training which he had received in the school of God. This is deeply important for our hearts It was away from the crowds and the quietude of pastoral life that David was taught the wondrous resources which there are in God available to faith. There in the fields of Bethlehem he had by divine enablement slain the lion and the bear. Chapter 17, verses 34 and 35. This is ever God's way. He teaches in secret, that soul which he has elected shall serve him in public. Ah, oh, my hearer, is it not just at this point that we may discover the explanation of our failures? It is because we have not sufficiently cultivated the secret place of the Most High, Psalm 91, one. That is our primary need. But do we really esteem communion with God Our highest privilege? Do we realize that walking with God is the source of our strength? There had been direct dealings between David's soul and God out there in the solitude of the fields, and it is only thus that any of us are taught how to get the victory. Have you yet learned, my brother or sister, that The closet is the great battlefield of faith. It is the genuine denying of self, the daily taking up of the cross, the knowing how to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and the bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5 Let the foe be met and conquered in private, and we shall not have to mourn defeat when we meet Him in public. Oh, may the Holy Spirit impress deeply upon each of our hearts the vital importance of coming forth from the presence of God as we enter upon any service unto Him. This it is which regulates the difference between success and failure. Note how the blessed Redeemer acted on this principle, Luke 6, 12, 13, and so forth. And Jesse said unto David his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to thy brethren, and carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand and look how thy brethren fare, and take their pledge. Verses 17 and 18. Another beautiful type is this of our Savior going about his father's business, seeking the good of his brethren. A similar one is found in Genesis 37, 13 and 14. But without staying to develop this thought, let us observe how God was directing all things to the accomplishment of his purpose. Jesse had eight sons, chapter 16, verses 10 and 11, and only three of them had joined Saul's army, 1713, so that five of them were at home, yet David, the youngest, was the one sent, though Jesse knew it not, God had work for him to do. Nothing happens by chance in this world, All is controlled and directed from on high. John 19.11 And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him and he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. Verse 20 How this evidenced the readiness and eagerness of David to obey his father's orders. Again we may look from the type to the anti-type and hear him say, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Hebrews 10.7 Blessed is it to Mark that David was as mindful of his father's sheep as he was of his commands. His leaving them with a keeper, evidence, His care and fidelity in the discharge of his office. His faithfulness in a few things fitted him to be ruler over many things. He who is best qualified to command is the one who had previously learned to obey. Matthew Henry said, God's providence brought him to the camp very seasonably. When both sides had set the battle in array and, as it should seem, were more likely to come to an engagement than they had yet been all the forty days, verse 21, both sides were now preparing to fight. Jesse little thought of sending his sons to the army just in that critical juncture, but the wise God orders the time and all the circumstances of actions and affairs so as to serve his design of securing the interests of Israel and advancing the man after his own heart. Though he had only just completed a long journey, we are told that David ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. Verse 22. This reminds of Proverbs 22:29. 29. Seest thou a man diligent in business? He shall stand before kings. As David talked with his brethren, Goliath came forth again and repeated his challenge. The whole army was sore afraid. Verse 24. And though reminding one another of the promised reward, awaiting the one who slew the giant, None dared to venture his life. Such inducements as Saul offered sink into utter insignificance when death confronts a man. David mildly expostulated with those who stood near him, pointing out that Goliath was defying the armies of the living God. Verse 26. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the haughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down, that thou mightest see the battle. Verse 28. How this reminds us of what is said of David's son and Lord in John 1.11 and so forth. There is a lesson here which every true minister of Christ does well to take to heart, for by so doing he will be forearmed against many a disappointment and discouragement sufficient for the disciple to be as his master. If the incarnate Son was not appreciated, his agents should not expect to be. For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ, Galatians 1.10 Not only will men in general be displeased, but even the people of God, when in a low state, will neither understand nor value the actings of faith. The man of God must be prepared to be misinterpreted and to stand alone. Blessed is it to mark David's reply to the cruel taunt of his brother. It was a real testing of his meekness but when he was reviled he reviled not again nor did he attempt any self-vindication or explanation of his conduct. Such had been quite wasted upon one with such a spirit. First, he simply asked What have I done? What fault have I committed to be thus chided? Reminding us of our Lord's meek reply under a much stronger provocation Why smitest thou me? John eighteen twenty three. Second he said Is there not a cause? This he left with him. There was a cause for his coming to the camp. His father had sent him. The honor of Israel, sullied by Goliath, required it. The glory of God necessitated it. Third, he turned from him toward another. Verse 30. David, speaking to one and another, soon reached the ears of Saul, who accordingly sent for him. Verse 31. To the king he at once said, Let no man's heart fail because of him, Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Verse 32. Only to be met with this reply. Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him? Matthew Henry said, Ah, those that undertake great and public services must not think it strange if they be discountenanced and opposed by those from whom... They have reason to expect support and assistance, but must humbly go on with their work in the face, not only of their enemies' threats, but of their friends' slights and suspicions." The language used by him in the presence of the king was not the bravado of a boaster, but the God-honoring testimony of a man of faith. Saul and his people were in despair as the consequence of their being occupied with the things of sight. The man of faith had a contemptuous disdain for Goliath because he viewed him from God's viewpoint as his enemy, as uncircumcised. Note, how he attributed his previous successes to the Lord and how he improved them to count upon him for further victory. See verse 37. The response made by Saul unto David's pleading was solemnly ludicrous. First he said, Go, and the Lord be with thee, which were idle words on such lips. Next we read that Saul armed David with his own armor, i.e., with some that he kept in his armory, in which he had far more confidence than in God. But David quickly perceived that such was unsuited to him. The one who has much to do with God in secret cannot employ worldly means and methods in public. The man of faith has no use for carnal weapons. Such things as ecclesiastical titles, dress, ritualistic ceremonies which are imposing to the eye of the natural man are but bubbles and baubles to the spiritual. And David put them off him, verse 39, and advanced to meet the haughty Philistine with only a sling and five smooth stones. Should it be asked, but are we not justified in using means? The answer is yes, the means which God supplies, the smooth stones, but not that which man offers, his armor. When the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. Verse 42. First, Eliab had taunted Then Saul had sought to discourage, and now Goliath scorns him. Ah, the one who by grace is walking by faith must not expect to be popular with men, for they have no capacity to appreciate that which actuates him. But true faith is neither chilled by a cold reception nor cooled by outward difficulties. It looks away from both, unto him with whom it has to do. If God be for us, Romans 8.31, it matters not who be against us.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats.